0: Не так, не так. Welcome to Ukraine!
1: Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information, security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and yeah, uh, Ukraine took back her song the other day without firing a shot in the city. So we went with some Ukrainian warhouse music uh, for our intro this week. I just wanted to give a, a special shout out to the handful of Risky Biz uh, listeners who are in Ukraine, who, who tune in from uh, Kiev and Lviv and you're winning and everyone knows it, especially them. You know who I mean when I say them. Now, uh, this week's show is brought to you by Gigamon, which of course has a network detection and response product. And uh, Gigamon's George Sanford will be joining us later to talk about what organizations need to do to stand up successful NDR programs. And spoiler alert, it's not as hard as standing up an EDR project, but you will actually need to put some people on it if you want it to succeed. Uh, That is coming up later, but first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's security news with our good friend Adam Boileau. Hello, Adam. Hi there, Pat. And uh, we've also got a second co-host joining us for the front part of today's show. Tom Uren writes the Seriously Risky Business newsletter for us, and he co-hosts the podcast of the same name with me. Uh, and yeah, Tom spent 15 years at ASD and then did a few years with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and uh, he's been with us full time for about a year and a half. And uh, the first thing we're going to talk about today is the Australian government's announcement that it's going to release the hounds. So obviously, we want Tom's perspective uh, here. Hello, Tom. Thanks for joining us. G'day, Pat. Okay, so uh, I just want to set up this discussion. Uh, The Australian government has indeed announced that it's standing up a special task force within the Australian Signals Directorate to target online crime syndicates. And uh, Australia's Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill did an interview on the ABC program uh, Insiders on Sunday uh, in which she explained the initiative. And here's just a small excerpt of that interview. So we've got a bit of an idea about what we're talking about here.
2: We need to shift away from the sense that the only um, good outcome here is someone behind bars because that can be hard when we've got people who are uh, essentially being harboured by foreign governments and allowed to continue this type of activity. Uh, But what we can do is is two really important things. The first thing is hunt these people down and disrupt their operations. It weakens these groups if um, governments like ours collaborate with the FBI and other police forces and intelligence agencies around the world. But the second important thing that we need to do is stand up and say that Australia is not going to be a soft target for this sort of thing, and if people come after our citizens, we are going to go after them. So
1: there we have it. It's happening! Uh, Adam, <laughs> what do you make of it? I mean, this is full hound release, right? It's, like, this is what we have been advocating on the show for, for years.
2: It's been a long time coming, and uh, I'm really excited to see uh, how this goes down. I mean, it's a... Uh, Uh, It's really nice. I mean, it's a pragmatic and sensible and, you know, real-world approach to this problem. You know, law enforcement's hard. We've got all these cyber toys and tools and people. We've got a problem. Let's go solve it with the tools that we've got. Uh, And, you know, I think a lot of people are going to be watching, you know, seeing whether this makes Australia a less desirable target, whether any outcomes, you know, whether anyone gets thrown off a bridge in St. Petersburg. We'll see, I guess, uh, you know, what are the... Uh, you know the the problems that they cause. These people look like whether it's you know release, I, I don't you know, think we're dispatching or, hit
1: squads quite yet, Adam. You, but, know, uh, we,
2: you know we might get there. We might it's, it's you know, <laughs> baby steps. You know, baby, the hounds are you know they're tiptoeing. Um, but yeah, I you know I'm just keen to see how this how this unfurls and I'm keen to see what the success metrics look like for them. Um, you know, how do they know how well they're doing? What do we see happen from this? Um, but overall, I mean, it's as you say, we've been taking this line for a long time. And uh, I guess now we can finally answer that perennial question of who, in fact, did let the dogs out. It turns out to be Claire Yeah,
1: I mean, last year, around, uh, I think it was around June last year, Tim Watts, who was the then shadow cybersecurity minister, did say in parliament that we should do this, right? So this actually has been Labor policy uh, for a year and a bit, uh, you know, on the record. So it's, it's a bit interesting that a lot of the coverage, particularly from overseas outlets, is like this is being in in response. This is being done in response uh, to the Optus breach and the Medibank Medibank hack that have uh, happened in Australia. And yeah, sure, while that might might be partially true, this actually has been the long standing policy of the political party that has you know that took took power uh, in Australia at the last election. So Tom, you worked at ASD. Uh, you know, you've got some insight into the way that government operates. This is an area of, you know, deep focus for you. One thing that you've said to me in the past that I've always found very interesting is you said that organizations like ASD are very good at achieving the top three things on their to-do, right? Like stuff at the lower lower priority, uh, maybe that's, you know, just gets kicked around and not much happens. But when they are really given something to focus on, they're actually quite effective at, at achieving goals. Do you think that applies in this case? Do you think this is a a real priority uh, that ASD has been given or do you think there's a little bit of politics here?
0: I think there's a little bit of both. So first of all I'd say that it has been a long time coming and also the previous government made changes that have sort of been hinting at this direction. So the actual change to the Intelligence Services Act which added a function of ASD to to go after offshore cyber criminals. That happened in 2017. And the last cyber strategy gave more money to the AFP to build basically what they call target development teams. So I think this is kind of the culmination. And I think ASD is probably on board. This is just my sense. But the other thing that the minister coming out so strongly is it really ties people to the mast um, and so now both the AFP and ASD are committed to making this a success. And I wonder if part of her comments weren't directed at the AFP where she said that, you know, we're thinking about a new way of doing crime fighting where we don't just arrest people, but we disrupt. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's sort of two organisations involved, I guess, is is what I'd make the point there.
1: Yeah. So the, the, the AFP, of course, is the Australian Federal Police uh, for those who, who aren't following that. but. Yeah, I mean, I I, I do find this very interesting and I've often said that like the AFP investigators, you know, they they could do some really cool stuff, but eventually they will hit a brick wall that has more to do with the legal limitations placed on them as investigators than you know, the inability of someone else to maybe progress the investigation by doing something like taking control of an account or by exploiting a vulnerability on some C2 server and, you know, onwards and onwards and onwards. AFP can't do that, ASD can. So I think, you know, a lot of the power in something like this, is you know, has more to do with uh, legal authorizations than the skills involved. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I think part of it is the legal authorization and part of it is also getting people to believe that it's a priority. And I think that's what Claire talking about it so publicly has done. And so then if if you do have a legal question, you can get it resolved very quickly or a, a sort of policy question. So the ability to do this isn't limited by the Technical capability, right? If you mm. want to hack, you can hack quite quickly. It's limited by how much do we need to make sure that this is the right thing to do and that we want to do this. And when it's a high priority, you can resolve those questions very quickly. If it's not, it gets sort of stuck into the priority list, and it's it's like a factory. You'll get to it eventually, but it's it's sort of like a first in first out <laughs> process. And so, well, that I eventually mean,
1: the ASD's be, the ASD's nickname among uh, you know its alumni literally is the factory, right? So yeah. Yeah, and and the (laughs) the priority,
0: I guess going back to your previous question, the priority subverts the factory process and puts it on its own separate track.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I mean, as far as I know, this is the first time a Five Eyes nation has come out and said we're doing this. You know, we have seen seen announcements out of the United States where they say, okay, we've tasked Cyber Command with attacking this group in the lead up to the election because they have malware on county systems that could be used to manipulate the election, you know, and whatever. And we saw the FBI recover some funds. Uh, through some sort of process that's a little bit opaque, right? So we don't know if there was cyber command involvement there or whatever. But it seems that most of the stuff that has come out of the US, at least if we were to just go on public statements that have been made by US officials, seems very reactive, right? Whereas this seems for the first time like a Five Eyes country standing up and saying, we're proactively going to tackle ransomware using our national offensive cyber capability as a standing thing, as a rolling ongoing thing. So, I mean... You pay a lot of attention to this stuff as well. This is a first, isn't it?
0: Yeah. So th- both the US and the UK have said we'll use offensive cyber against criminals, but none of them have, you know, talked about the size of the operation. Like so Claire's talked about a hundred people full time, and none of them have said it's a kind of rolling effort. So she's sort of no. put it out there. It's a rolling effort, it's ongoing. It doesn't really matter necessarily what crew you're in or what you've done in the past it's about disrupting things that could happen in the future so there's a certain if you're yeah. cynical there's a certain pre-crime element to this I'm, I'm not that cynical I think it's a, a good idea to be able to identify the threats that are getting more impactful and trying to stop them because you, you know that they're going to become impactful because they're doing stuff now uh, and, and you really want to try and disrupt them before they become hugely...
1: Well, uh, and I, I, I wonder, Tom, how far along they are with some of these operations, because I suspect that they would have considered the operational impacts of making the announcement... You know, and, and these ransomware crews are known to throw their toys out of the pram and attack countries that say, that indicate they're going to take action against them. And we haven't seen anything yet, right, uh, despite despite the the government announcement. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe we're, 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 we're on the precipice of, of of using the term cyber rules of engagement, but I'll get to that in a bit. But I can't believe I, I'm actually forming these sentences. But, but, you know, I mean, so look, one thing we were talking about before we got rolling, and I, I definitely want to get this out there uh, to the audience is, you know, how much sense does it make for all of the Five Eyes agencies to be doing the same thing? Because from what you were saying just earlier, it doesn't really make sense. Um, Perhaps it makes sense for other agencies to support this initiative, but it doesn't make sense for everybody to be doing the same thing.
0: Yeah, we were talking in the context about GCSB and um, a bit of cross-Tasman envy. From yeah. our Kiwi friends, <laughs> and
1: so so I should I should just point out for people who in the northern hemisphere when that interview with Claire O'Neill aired on Australian television and clips of it started popping up on the internet, there were many jealous Kiwis on Twitter um, saying, "Why don't we have a minister like this?" And indeed, Adam Boileau has just informed us that there are calls in New Zealand for GCSB to start doing uh, something similar, which is what Tom's Tom's talking about now.
2: <laughs> yes, we and um, we we admitted we actually do computer hacking at all as a first step there. So that's a you know. Small step for the GCSP, please. steps, mate. <laughs> steps. But,
1: yeah, yeah, so, so, Tom, please continue.
0: Well, the, the, in the context of a partnership, which the Five Eyes is, it doesn't necessarily make sense for you all to do all the things all at once. So I think you can, you can make an argument that if you're going to specialise in a particular thing, say going against criminals, it's worth sort of centralising that and having either one organisation or, or one group of people do that. So I don't think it necessarily makes sense for GCSB to also (laughs) tackle cybercrime. I mean, but if you extend that argument far enough, maybe it just makes sense for Cyber Command to do all of it, right? So I think there's a balance to be had.
1: Well, I mean, you know, the way the, the way that Five Eyes operates is often, you know, a lot of this stuff is divided up by region. I can foresee a time where it's like, okay, Cyber Command, you handle Evil Corp, these guys will do Revil, you know, slash blog XX. You know, I mean, eventually we could say see a similar sort of division of responsibilities, surely.
0: Yeah, so one of the concerns people have expressed is that by attacking within a country like Russia that could actually be escalatory. I don't buy that, but I think it's worth thinking about whether it is, right? And perhaps in the case of the Russia and the US right now, maybe that is something that is not worth doing because of the other tensions that are around Ukraine. And so I think this actually makes more sense for Australia to take up that role
1: yeah, because, because we're not we're not the peer competitor. That's or, right. and you know, yeah. and, and you know yeah. it,
0: it would be ridiculous for Russia to get really pissed at us, <laughs> because yeah. like what's our role in Ukraine? We've sent uh, like we've sent some Bushmasters, I guess. <laughs> yeah,
1: Bushmasters. By the way, uh, for for listeners who don't know what they are, they are a uh, they're 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 an Australian armored vehicle that are kind of legendary. They were designed by a state-owned company, which was, I think, since privatised and sold off to Talos. But they're really good. And what's funny is every time you see a picture of a um, destroyed Bushmaster go past on Twitter, you click on the tweet... And it's full of replies from Australians saying, no, Basically, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as far as I know, no one's ever died in a Bushmaster because they're built like um, the proverbial brick shit house. But Adam, I want to bring you into this conversation now because, you know, you do hacking for a living, right? Like penetration testing and whatnot. I'm sure your, your hacker brain has run wild uh, in, in thinking about how ASD might start to tackle these groups. One thing I, sh- I should just point out too, because this happened after we ran last week's show, is the attackers behind this Medibank breach. One of the first pieces of data that they that they released was a CSV file called Abortions.csv, which apparently contained uh, the personal information of women who, whose health insurance had claimed the relevant code for that procedure um, uh, through through Medibank. So just the lowest of the low. And I understand that that's, you know, it's just become such a big political issue here, that I'm not surprised we're seeing major policy developments for people outside of Australia, they wouldn't realise like, this is something everyone is talking about. But you know, when the rubber hits the road, Adam, you know, how do you think a SIGINT agency is going to go trying to disrupt these groups? What, what do you think they can do? What's their best path to success?
2: Well, I mean, the biggest challenge that crime groups have as an organizational structure is that, you know, they are mutually distrusting. I mean, the people who work together don't necessarily know real identities. They don't have great communications mechanisms. It's not like, you know, there's some certificate authority that they can use to kind of trust anchor all of their online identity. And so you know, degrading communications, degrading the ability to verify identity and trust people, sowing, you know, just sort of distrust and discomfort. So we've seen, you know, attacks on forums in the past, you know, uh, leaking uh, messages, you know, between people on forums, but yeah, anywhere where there's communication um, is a great place for them to get leverage. And obviously, you know, second agencies know a lot about, um, you know, impersonating people using other people's identities to leverage access to, to groups and organizations. Plus, then there's the technical, you know, kind of software vulnerabilities I and mean, forums and the sorts of, uh, you know, tools they'll build, you know, portals and and um, management dashboards and things, to, you know, to manage their life, right? To get on um, their infrastructure is not super great, so there's plenty of options for infrastructure, you know, if they've got tools for dealing with things like Tor or other anonymity networks, you know, that's another thing you can you can leverage well, um, so. Uh, You know, a software supply chain just like everybody else also difficult um, to get right so uh, but I think it's ultimately the the nature of their trust relationships that probably provide the best avenue and certainly that's where I would kind of kind of think to go first but you know they've got lots of capability on the shelf and all of it's going to work and anywhere where you can get in and you know disrupt their bitcoins or disrupt their communications or you know even just doxing them to other criminals, figuring out who hates who, right, and and making, you know, the justice of the jungle (laughs) take care of some of these people inside the borders of the countries they're being protected because the criminal networks have so much beef and so much, you know, kind of everyone is going to be jealous of, of money and access and, and so on. And so, yeah, using those tools to be able to affect, impact on these people inside the boundaries of their jurisdiction that, you know, they're being protected by, etc. So, yeah, I think they got, they, got a, they got a lot of options here. And I think you know, the similarity yeah. to, you know, terrorist organisations uh, that they have plenty of experience targeting, you know, I think is there's, there's certainly some similarities there.
1: I think in some ways Australia's the right... Country to do this as well, probably Australia and England, because they have kind of the right scale in their cyber agencies to be able to deploy resources against this, but they're not so big that they're, they're, they're overly bureaucratic. I wanted to get your sense of that, Tom, because, you know, it seems that, you know, Americans just are very process-oriented, you know, there's like seven layers of checks and legal <laughs> review on everything. It doesn't really work quite the same way, uh, does it, at, at, at places like, you know, uh, GCHQ or AST.
0: Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, we'd like to think we were more nimble. What amazed. <laughs> me was that, you know, the U.S. could decide to do something and within a year they'd have like 300 people working on it. But to actually bring something together was easier because you also tended to know everyone. Um, yeah. And so in this case, both the AFP and ASD are in Canberra separated by about, I don't know, three minutes drive. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's it's really easy to have those kind of meetings where you want to talk to someone in person. The other thing I wanted to say is that I think the enduring nature of this really gives a lot more scope to try and understand those networks. So just building on what Adam said, if you're doing a short-term operation, you figure out what you can and you do something, you know, the easiest, dumbest thing that'll work straight away. But having an enduring operation allows you to really sort of dig in and understand where the best points of leverage are and sort of line up three or four of them in a row so that you can have a sort of continuous disruption rather than just the... The first thing you come across.
1: I mean, is your sense, Tom, that these guys are going to feel it?
0: I would be extremely surprised if it wasn't effective. And one of the reasons I think that is that Claire O'Neill is not going to come out and say that we're doing this big deal thing if she's not confident that in three months time, in question time, she'll be able to say something substantive when she gets a question about it. Yeah. So that makes me think that they've had some level of success that people are confident that they can go to a, yes, we're confident you can say this, we'll have something to say, you know, it'll be vague and not have a lot of detail, but they'll be able to to sort of trumpet success at some later point in time.
1: Yeah, so I, I hear, I see and hear a few people pooping on this. Uh, I'm I'm a believer it sounds like, Tom, you are too, and Adam, you are as well. I mean, look, my position is it's worth a try, right? Like, why not? Why wouldn't you?
2: Yeah, exactly. Like, we're all, we are all want to see what happens when the hounds get released, and uh, as Tom says, when there's a politician involved, then we might get a bit more visibility of success than when yeah. it's all done, you know, in Spookville.
1: It's my understanding, too, that that they've been given a fairly open remit in terms of what they can do to these guys, so... Uh, could, could be fun. Could be interesting.
0: Did you see the, there was a Krebs article about a Jabazus guy who was arrested in Switzerland? And this is one of the things that makes me really optimistic about ASD action against ransomware criminals because investigators had access to their Jabber Chats for a number of years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's oh, like, man. surely these investigators are competent, but they're probably not as competent as, you know, hundreds of people in a, in a SIGINT organisation. And if you can get access <laughs> for years, <laughs> that just gives you yeah. so much scope to understand and, and play silly buggers.
1: All right, well, Tom, that's where you're actually going to leave us, mate. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was really great to get your insight. You know, as someone who does specialise in analysing government policy and also has actually experience working at the agency that uh, that we're talking about, fantastic stuff, mate. And I'm I'm going to really look forward to reading your newsletter tomorrow.
0: Thanks, Pat. See ya.
1: Now, Adam, uh, you know we don't normally talk about a uh, a theft of cryptocurrency this early in the show, but uh, there's been a there's been a big one. I mean. I've been following this story just because it's been so wild, but the collapse of the sort of FTX cryptocurrency company, you know, from gajillions of dollars in market cap to zero, basically overnight, I mean, it's been a pretty wild ride. Uh, It looks like there's been a theft of several hundred millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency from that platform, like as this collapse unfolded, what on earth is
2: going on here? That's a it's a really good question. Um people tracking the blockchain estimate yeah, somewhere between three and six and change, hundred million worth. It's not a hundred percent clear because the organization of this uh, cryptocurrency platform was so terrible to start with. Um, but yeah, the the questions, I guess, are one, was it an insider taking advantage of, you know, the chaos as everyone's in the middle of, um, you know, watching the platform collapse? Was it someone who was already in there and realized that they better nick the money while it still existed? Uh, or, you know, was it someone from the outside taking advantage, you know, of the situation, you know, rather than necessarily being in there to start with? Uh, either way, uh, you know, it's a you know, pretty reasonable amount of money and there's a lot of eyes uh, on the relevant bits of the blockchain we've seen a bunch of it moved off uh, into kind of you know ethereum related things but everyone is watching uh, the wallet of addresses involved you know like a hawk and it must be really i'm trying to imagine like emotionally how that is right to have success to have control stolen...
1: over so much money and you can't yes, and yet you, yet you can't, can't wash it
2: yeah, you can't even buy a pizza. Uh, so yeah. some of the uh, one of the investigators uh, looking at this spotted that some like e- Ethereum gas transaction fees were paid for by an account you know offered name branded exchange that does have no customer requirements. Um, and of course, you know so someone looking, might be
1: getting a knock on the door. Uh, yeah, well, soon, exactly. Huh?
2: Yes, yes. Yeah. So, I don't know. Either way, it's. Um, I, yeah, it just must be a hard ride having all of that money and then not even be able to, you know, buy a pizza with it.
1: <laughs> and, and we should point out too, FTX was one of the major players in crypto. They they ran Super Bowl ads and things like that. And the guy who ran it was regarded as, you know, some sort of boy wonder genius. And... um yeah, I mean, if you read Matt Levine uh, is a is a Bloomberg columnist writes a newsletter called Money Stuff. I recommend everyone subscribe to it, even if you're not interested in finance. The guy is such a hilarious writer um, that you just have to subscribe. It's a, it's a must subscribe newsletter, and he's been covering it. It's just been um, extraordinary. But yes, um, it it ain't it ain't what it used to be. Uh, you know, crypto crypto money laundering just ain't what it used to be.
3: <laughs> it, is,
2: it is also just so rewarding, like watching the inevitable chaos and failure of cryptocurrency in general. Like I just, it warms my heart every time something like this happens, even though people are losing money and and their savings and so on and so forth. But it's just a, like this was always a terrible idea and there's a degree of schadenfreude in that.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is, and I was trying to read about FTT, the token that FTX issues, and it's like a derivative token, you know, it's a token that used to trade crypto derivatives. So it's like a derivative, derivative, derivative. And it's, it's, it, it made my brain bleed. Uh, my brain spontaneously started bleeding reading about this and then re- reading Levine's stuff it's just like, don't put your money in this stuff it's nuts. And and look, speaking of uh, uh, cryptocurrency laundering uh, the United States has has issued uh, reissued its sanctions on tornado cash and provided more detail and is now alleging uh, and is now also alleging that the money rinsed through tornado cash is directly tied to the North Korea nuclear program um, Catalan's thought on this in a newsletter he wrote for us is that some of these sanctions are going to be challenged and that's why the US is sort of bolstering the case for why they were applied in the first place.
2: Well, I guess you can't really sanction someone a second time, but yeah, the idea that they're doing this to bolster arguments against it does make a whole bunch more sense than just, you know, but we already told you it's sanctioned and we're going to tell you again to make sure you remember. But either way, any ties to North Korean nuclear weapons programs are just like, why are you even involved in the ecosystem and an economy that does that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now let's talk about the other big trash fire uh, of the week. And of course I'm talking about Twitter and it looks like there's some early signs of rot starting to creep into the old bird site, Adam. Um, So first of all, like, and this has all happened since, um, uh, since we went to air last week. So Leah Kisner who is the was the the Twitter CISO uh, resigned and uh, I believe also their their head of compliance and their head of privacy also resigned the head of trust and safety also gone Uh, And now we're starting to see like little bits of Twitter's corpse start to rot and fall off. The first things that seem to have ceased working are SMS-based two-factor authentication and also Translate. The Translate um, uh, function of Twitter has become somewhat unreliable. This doesn't look good,
2: does it? It it really does not look good. And breaking multi-factor auth that's certainly a problem like if you log out of your account and only could use sms to a fatal log back in well, you're kind of stuck you can't log in anymore um but yeah there's you know that's just an externally there's sort of a, a very limited amount of externally visible tells that, that things are going wrong and, and Auth is definitely one of the worst ones i think someone also pointed out the um counter for like number of unread notifications on ios uh, I haven't seen the little number lately. It's just a, like you've got some notifications. We don't know how many because the <laughs> microservice that serves the number of notifications was broken. So, yeah, it does feel like the wheels are mid falling off there. And, you know, well, it, it doesn't just necessarily feel
1: going. like the wheels have fallen off, but they're certainly starting to wobble. Yeah, no,
2: they certainly are. They certainly are. And if you were. You know, Can you imagine trying to roll instant response in an environment that's in that much chaos with that many people gone? Like if they detected some kind of intrusion or something bad happening in the moment, the idea that they could come up with a comprehensive, sensible response seems super unlikely. So if you were sitting on a Twitter bugs, or you had, you know, got initial entry and were just sitting around in that network, like now is the time to make hay and steal all the DMs, you know, before they manage to accidentally delete them themselves...
1: Yeah. I mean, so this is what I wanted to talk to you about is like, how concerned do we need to be that they're not in a good position to do detection and response? Because it, it, it certainly does feel like, I mean, I have no insight into whether or not they've laid off, you know, the teams that do that. No idea whatsoever. But you, you certainly get the impression that if the CISO has resigned, it's maybe not going so well. And, and the CISO no longer has confidence, then, you know, maybe it's not going so well.
2: Yes, plus I mean, there's the interaction with their various this, you know, consent decrees or whatever it is from the FTC requiring them to do a bunch of things securely and, and discuss changes to their infrastructure. Uh, you know, that's already a concern for anyone involved in security in that platform. But yeah, the
1: well, the FTC, the FTC, I'll just say, has indicated that it is paying attention to the situation <laughs> at Twitter. Which I mean, you know, you really don't want the FTC putting out statements saying they're they're paying close attention to no, not you. No, you probably
2: don't. Not while you're in the middle of. Uh, it all up so um Mm. but yeah like doing detection and response is hard enough normally you know finding the person who understands whether a particular behavior you've seen is normal or not normal like that's a thing that comes with experience right if you've just fired half the engineers that built the platform and, and have worked there for years trying to answer those questions about does this look normal is this weird what do we expect of this system that you need to do reasonable detection? I mean,
1: I kind of I get what you're saying, right? Which is even if they kept the core SOC, yes. you know, and and detection response team, like if all the engineers are gone, it just makes their
2: life a lot harder. Yeah, I mean, this kind of stuff is always a team play and doing it, you know, doing it blind is is just extra, extra difficult on top of a thing that's already difficult. Um, and, you know, Twitter has so much technical data, long engineering history that, yeah, I mean, getting rid of that many people I just it just can't be good.
1: No. And I think more people are gone than they wanted to be gone because they fired a bunch of people and then a whole bunch of other people said, well, okay, I'm out as well. Right. <laughs> and they kind of wound up overshooting their headcount reduction there somewhat.
2: Yeah. Either way, I'm amazed every time I open the app and anything loads at this point. Right. Yeah. I and mean, it's just a that it feels like the Mary Celeste, you know? <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Well, it's still afloat. I'll tell you what's not
1: loading for me at the moment, which is tweets related to Infosec, Adam, because as Big Indian Smalls uh, posted, uh, posted to Twitter, uh, Basically, what's happened over the last couple of weeks has been like a, something akin to the rapture for uh, <laughs> you know, InfoSec Twitter accounts. They have all just vanished and have appeared on Mastodon. Most of them uh, at, an, at a uh, uh, Mastodon instance called InfoSec.Exchange, which is run by Jerry Bell, who is also a InfoSec podcaster and I believe, I think, an executive at IBM. And, you know, he's having a quote unquote great time right now trying to manage an instance with 17,000 InfoSec people on it. But, you know, they're running a fork of Mastodon and someone dropped some security research into this particular <laughs> code base that, you know, you think Twitter's bad, like, but yeah, it is. But Mastodon's new, right? And we always know what it's like when a lot of people start using a bit of software that hasn't really had a lot of scrutiny. And this, th- th- there's a bug and it's amazing, and I'll let you talk, you describe it because I've talked enough.
2: Yeah, this is some great work from a guy called Gareth Hayes that works uh, for Portswigger's research team alongside uh, James Kettle and some other notables. Uh, and yeah, he came up with a bug where you could inject like HTML content into a tweet and then use that to you know kind of eventually ended up bypassing the content security policy. Anyway, net result was. Uh, a demonstration which if you clicked a thing that looked very much like a normal like user interface element, then it would convince the Chrome like password autofiller to send your password uh, off uh, to the attacker. So um, not ideal for a platform full of infosec people, but as you say, like it's a code base that, you know, has not got the kind of attention that when you've got 17,000 infosec people sitting on one server all chatting to each other that you're going to get. And overall, this will be good for Mastodon, uh, but Right now, I mean that. I don't know that I would feel comfortable running a Mastodon instance with the amount of people looking for bugs in it, Uh, and there is some janky stuff in there around the federation code. And like, it's it's a a open source platform that has grown, you know, with a lot of people contributing, but probably not as much security as, say, attention at least that uh, and budget uh, that Twitter has had over the years. So. Yeah.
1: (laughs) There's going to be security challenges there. I mean, already, uh, you know, instance admins are like, hey, if you could just set your toots, because they're not tweets, Adam, they're toots. If you could set your toots to auto-delete after a certain period of time, that would be really helpful, you know, (laughs) because there's all these scaling issues, right? And you remember when Twitter started, it was the same thing. They could barely get the hardware into the data centers fast enough, right? Because this type of stuff, which is like many-to-many comms, is really computationally and network intensive, right? So now all of a sudden, there's these community instance admins who are eating gigantic bills and like having to put out fires and deal with you know deal with moderation and conflict and all of this sort of stuff. And um, you know, it's it's a it's a fascinating time. And I got to say too, like I'm over there and posting there, and I get so much more interaction than I do on Twitter. Like that's where Infosec is now. It's it's absolutely insane how quickly it happened. And as You know, Big Endian Smalls said it was like the rapture. Just everyone vanished in the blink of an eye and they popped up somewhere else. My joke is they're in a better place, (laughs) Asterix, They're in a better place now.
2: A friend of mine is also a Mastodon instance operator and they are also having a hell of a time this week, you know, bodging, caching and and all sorts of things around scaling to deal with the rapture.
1: The rapture. Yeah, so I'll be uh I'll be uh sending Jerry some money. You know, i probably uh send off my eight bucks a month to Jerry Bell instead of Elon. Uh and uh he's put the call out for volunteers as well. Uh so you can head over there and and read his I think he's pinned it, um, you know, his toot about that. So if you feel like doing some volunteer admining and and uh moderation and stuff and support for users who've signed up with the wrong email address and stuff like that, Jerry's all he is. Now, Catalan uh, Kimpanu has a story uh, going out with us today. It's not been published yet, but it should just be going live about the time this podcast drops. Looks like there's a major hack and leak info op uh, unfolding in Moldova, Adam.
2: Yes, there's a Moldova leaks site which uh, has been publishing emails and comms, like instant messaging comms and things, uh, from a number of members of you know the political cast uh, in Moldova. Um, some of the well people,
1: yeah they're minister of justice like actual sure, government for ministers, example
2: yeah. yes <laughs> minister of justice and uh, all sorts of other important figures um, and there are some fingers pointing this to perhaps being a russian operation um the leaks generally kind of support uh, one of the pro russian political groups in the uh, in moldova and you know we've seen hacking league used by the russians a bunch of times in the past but uh, this seems pretty on the nose if you are if you're a moldovan
1: yeah, and they're claiming to some of the people affected are claiming that their messages have actually been manipulated. I mean, it's hard to know whether that's true, uh, but what is true is that the pro-Kremlin party uh, happened to be, you know, happened to be all over this kind of immediately, right? Mm-hmm. And, and talking about it, and it certainly does seem like something that has been stood up to benefit uh, Russian interests in Moldova.
2: Yeah, it certainly does feel that way, and that's, uh, you know, seems to be Catalan's opinion uh, when he's been writing it up for us as well, and... Uh, you know, I, I wish I was even slightly surprised.
1: Yeah. As far as we know, like there's no other English cover- English language coverage of this. Uh, so you can head over to riskybiznews.substack.com and subscribe to Catalan's newsletter, which is, you know, obviously unbiased, but I think it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, there's also a podcast version of that newsletter that goes out three times a week through our Risky Business News Feed, uh, which now features a professional newsreader, Adam, Claire Aird. And it's, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now, some technical news here, and I found this story very, very interesting, Adam, because it confirms something that you know you and I kind of feared would happen has happened, and that is an awful lot of people are still using vulnerable Log4j, and not even just in stuff that they set up ages ago. This is like new software being built is still pulling vulnerable versions of Log4j from like private repos, third-party repos and stuff, and it's just everywhere.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is. Uh, I mean, I was surprised at how much uh, there is. I mean, according to a stats, third. a third. A third, yes. A third
1: of Log4j out there is the old, crappy one.
2: Yeah, and that, that does seem like kind of a problem. Um, and, you know, I was surprised it's still that high given the publicity of that particular bug. Um, you know, I, I would expect to see that on something that was particular, you know, somewhat obscure or no one particularly cared about. But for something that got that much publicity, I was surprised. And I guess, you know, we've been, we've talked about the you know, building software in, we've talked about the continuous building and deployment of software as being a thing that helps you pull in upstream components, you know, more often, more rapidly as a more normal thing so that these kinds of bugs don't have such a long tail. And it's kind of telling that perhaps the configuration of, you know, of software that pulls in stuff um, at build time, you know, is the thing that has the long tail, you know, the software itself rather than necessarily the way that it's built being the problem. Um, but yeah, either way, if you're uh, in charge of anything, you know, that has continuous integration, we've got the metrics and got the data about what versions of things you're pulling in. I guess if you were going to look, you probably would have by now. But, um, you know, if you've got those tools, it pays to make use of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Symantec has published some research tying a Chinese APT crew to an attack on a bunch of Asian governments and also a certificate authority in Asia, although there doesn't look to be any evidence that they, you know, actually used their access at the CA to mint dodgy certificates or sign dodgy code, but they definitely were all up in it.
2: Yeah, I mean, being up in a CA is one of those things that seems like the golden ticket to the entire, you know, the entire internet. But with cert transparency uh, and some of the other you know projects to get good visibility of how certificates are being used, it has become a bit more dangerous. But I'm sure you know, aiming for cert authorities is still a great place to be uh, and still gives you lots lots of options. Um, This was the um, the group we used to call Lotus Blossom. Uh, I think Symantec refers to it as as Billbug. But this is a group with a lot of heritage, especially in that area of the world, um, and have done a lot of, you know, really interesting uh, and quite sophisticated hacking over the years. So not surprised to see them in a CA.
1: And, you know, Adam, there's a really strong attribution to China on this, because if you click through and read the Symantec blog post, they talk about the tools... That the attackers use, so they have got ad find, you know, ad find, uh, Winmail, you know, ping, trace route, and there's, and then comes the dead giveaway, Winrar. <laughs> what is it with Chinese APT groups and groups and Winrar?
2: <laughs> I, I, it's a it's a great question, on one we will never really, I think we'll never really know why it's Winrar just so much. It's
1: archiver of choice. I mean, there's other multi part archivers, guys. Like, I, I, I seriously think at this point, like Winrar is a huge signal for detection, right? <laughs> like if there's WinRAR in your environment, roll incident response.
2: Yeah, I, mean, uh, I, I I'm, I'm with you on that. <laughs> on that <one.
1: laughs> uh, interesting story here. Jonathan Greig has the write-up of this one for the record. Uh, Cisco's put out some research saying that uh, uh, IPFS is being used as a C2 uh, uh, method by a bunch of crews, which is interesting. IPFS is this distributed internet file system. Um, it makes
2: total sense that you use it as C2. Like why the hell not? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It totally makes sense, and it's a uh, it's kind of like um, BitTorrent, but with a like single global tracker. So if you can imagine, you know, BitTorrents were great for distributing all sorts of files, but uh, having a mechanism that was you know reasonably well supported, globally visible, censorship resistant has a lot of benefits for attackers, so seeing it being abused is, is not, a, not a big surprise. And, I mean, some web browsers, I think um, most recent Opera even, has built-in support for talking to this protocol. You can just, like, put IBFS colon slash slash in your URL bar and, and talk to it. So it's not quite as niche uh, as perhaps, you know, on first glance it might seem. Um, I don't know what this means. <laughs> like, I don't know what you do about it. It's the intended function uh, of this particular, like, file-sharing platform, so...
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, any enterprise should be blocking all an- 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 anonymity tools or, you know, sort of censorship bypass tools because one person's censorship bypass tool is another person's C2 framework. We see that with Tor. We see that yes. with, yeah, you exactly. know, with domain fronting, with bloody everything, right? And I should mention too, uh, Microsoft has finally blocked or is is finally blocking domain front- fronting across its cloud platforms too. So that they're the last ones to do it. Uh, so now it's all three of the majors are blocking domain fronting. But then I guess if they roll into TLS 1.3, that doesn't matter anyway, right? Because that's like domain fronting by, by default kind of thing or, or <laughs> hidden domain by default.
2: Yes, yeah, but I, mean, I think this will make a few of our you know red teamers a, a little bit sad, burning yeah. their toys down. But yeah, we all knew it was coming eventually yeah. one
1: day. So you guys were still using Azure for your. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe <a little>
2: bit.
1: <laughs> you wouldn't want to <laughs> g- confess to a terms of service violation no, uh, yeah. on this podcast,
2: yeah.
1: We got a great write up here from uh, Maddie Stone from Project Zero, which I'm just including because it's a good read, and that's about some bugs in modern Samsung uh, uh, and. Android phones
2: yeah it's a, it's a great write-up uh, as usual from Manystone uh, and yeah a good description of some a solid bug chaining and some interesting bugs um, that have uh, been used in the wild and that's one of the points that came out of this story that was perhaps more interesting Is Samsung have now agreed to at least mention when uh, bugs that they are patching are being exploited in the wild which is not a thing that they did before so that's also useful
1: yeah, I think this write-up's based on a sample from late 2020 and uh, most of this stuff was patched in March 21. But yeah, always, always great when Matty Stone drops a blog post. And finally, Adam, let's talk about the Google, the accidentally <laughs> discovered Google <laughs> Pixel screen lock hack uh, where someone wound up with a $70,000 payout for this. It was a really interesting find and totally just an accidental find. And the explanation for how this bug worked is like pretty interesting as well. Uh, what yeah, yeah. It?
2: Yeah, it really is. So this was a bug where if you have a locked, you know, powered on, locked Android phone, you were able to bypass the lock screen, which, you know, law enforcement pretty big into that, as are a bunch of other people. Uh, And the technique for bypassing it was really interesting. So... If you uh, have a SIM card and the the embedded SIM cards in your device uh, have a like in, a PIN code that you can use to lock the SIM. This is kind of back from the old days when the phones were less smart and the SIM card was responsible for more of it. But anyway, if you had a, a SIM card whose PIN had been locked out, you tried it too many times, uh, then the SIMs also have a thing called a puck, a personal unlock code, uh, which the telco will typically tell you or it's printed on the packaging that you can use to unlock the SIM if it ever gets locked. Um, and if if you put a locked, a pin locked SIM into an Android phone, it pops up a screen to prompt you to enter the puck code, and uh, Android has a mechanism for displaying security entry security screens, so asking for a pin or a passcode or a, one of the pattern pattern codes, and it's the same mechanism used to ask for the pin code for the puck. Uh, and so you plug a SIM in, it pops up the please enter your puck screen. You enter the puck and then it calls the like dismiss the security screens routine, which makes the actual unlock your phone screen go away as well, or instead of, or, or both. Uh, some kind of like, I guess, a race condition in a way. Uh, and then, yeah, you have an unlocked phone. Uh, and yeah. because you can bring your own pre locked sim, it's very quick, very easy, very effective, 100% repeatable, reliable. It's the perfect. The perfect mechanism. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah it really a, is.
1: So, I mean, it's you know uh, uh, very sad for the um, uh, for the FBI who can't do this to new devices, but I'm guessing they may have a few plugged into chargers, sitting in the old evidence lockers there that they can yeah. now do this to.
2: Yes, yes, indeed. So, I think Pixel uh, six and five were confirmed as affected by this, but I wouldn't be surprised that it was you know more broadly applicable as well. Um, so, yeah that's, yeah, that's good. that's a good find, and and as you say, the guy who found it says it was basically an accident. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> well, and it's,
1: it's, it's interesting, right? Because we always talk about the, you know, the robust encryption where PBKDF2, you know, the, the encryption key is derived from the passphrase that you use in the device or the, or the pin code uh, that you use in the device. But, you know, you only do that at boot up time. Then it's just a lock screen. And, and you know, this demonstrates yep. that there are some still some bugs to be found, even though it's something so simple. There's still ways around them. Right. And I just I just find that really interesting.
2: Yeah, and can you imagine like building a test case for this Like when you're doing yeah. your Android release? No like, way you're yeah. going to think of this. Yeah, you know? exactly. no, Absolutely
1: exactly. no way. Well, mate, that's actually it for this week's news. Uh, great to chat to you, and uh, we'll do it all again next week.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, Pat. I'll talk to you then.
1: That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. Big thanks to him for that, and big thanks to Tom Uren, also our colleague here at Risky Business. Uh, Tom was actually off in the USA last week for a conference, and he was uh, yeah he was really missed because he's become such a terrific sounding board uh, for me, and his work on uh, seriously risky business is just terrific. So yeah, between him and Catalan and Adam, uh, you know what a team we have these days. And now we've got Claire Ed reading risky biz news for us, and you know she's she's fantastic, a real professional. Uh, and I guess uh, while I'm, while I'm saying this, I should also say a shout out to Tiran Ferrier, our commercial manager, who's been doing uh, just a terrific terrific. terrific job, uh, as always, of handling everything on the sponsor side. So you're all legends. Thank you. Thank you, team. Now, speaking of sponsors, it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with George Sanford, uh, who is a senior manager of the customer success security team at Gigamon. And yeah, a lot of you would know, uh, but yeah, Gigamon sells an NDR solution and that's network detection and response for those who are unfamiliar. And yeah, I had a great chat with George and uh, who, who says, surprisingly, there are still a lot of contemporary enterprises that aren't doing any NDR. There's been a big rush to endpoint over the last decade and that means that some people just aren't watching their networks. So George joins me to talk about that and also why companies uh, need to actually assign a couple of people to NDR projects to make sure they actually succeed.
3: You know, as an industry, we've we've done a disservice to ourselves. We sold uh, things as a as an either or. So instead of approaching things as you know uh, complete visibility across you know our environments, we've chosen this this uh, point product, this point product versus this point product, and shifted budget one to the other as you know what's become. Uh, so everyone rushed to work. the
1: network. Now everyone rushed yeah. to EDR. Now back oh, to the EDR. network and that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, we right? end up yeah.
3: we end up chasing it. And and you know, as we're as we're developing you know, developing a workforce, you know, you get trained up in a few things. You know, I know I know folks that that started out as endpoint folks that now will, you know, fight against you to say, Oh, you know, endpoint superior to network. You know, I know folks that were, you know, full packet capture or, or die. That would never support an edr solution and i think as an enterprise we really you know we need to have a balance of those those solutions well, i
1: mean i you know just like as an observer that strikes me as a really silly conversation it's like arguing that apples are better than bananas it's like no they're different and they can be part of a balanced diet
3: well and, and you know again it's the same conversation you know it's funny you mentioned the apples it's the apples versus pcs versus linux yeah you know, which is superior it's like okay reality if we're protecting an enterprise we have to be versed in all three you can't just ignore yeah. one because you don't particularly like it, you know, and I think that that's, you know, that's where we've, we've kind of come to. But, yeah, I, I think um, maybe they've approached, maybe sometimes enterprises approached uh, network and not had a lot of success or maybe not seen value because of how they've implemented it um, and not gone down that road. Or they've made investments in EDR and, and made investments in SIEM and not gotten as much out of it as they wanted to in the first place.
1: Yeah, you know, where, well, and there's the also there's also another hour. there's also another factor here, which is there's st- still some of that like auto magic IPS technology. I mean, that stuff is still floating around in enterprise networks.
3: Yeah, yeah, and we still we still see some of that today, where it's like everybody wants everybody wants the 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 like functions, you know, with that IPS IDS where it's like okay, this automatically. I mean, honestly, it always kind of freaks me out a little bit when they start talking about it because I'm like, I don't want uh, a device making decisions for me. You know, in the abstract it's great, but I don't want a device making decisions for me without I me. Mean, it depends me having on the environment, disability. right? Like
1: it if, if that's on the well done. If that's well done, it can actually work and it depends where you set your thresholds and everything. But I think right. you're right. For any major enterprise with a major security team, you know, it's probably not the way you want to go.
3: Yeah. I, I you know, the, the scenario in my mind has always been do you want your CEO, you know, in the midst of presenting to have their their, you know, yeah, their device quarantined right? automatically. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, that's a bad day for somebody. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, in, so in this
1: this is interesting that there are that there are still you know enterprise greenfields opportunities for uh, NDR, and I, and and I think it is pretty well established by the field generally that having some sort of network visibility is always going to be a good idea, right? So that's why we've got, you know, NDR as a category these days. It's one of the few categories where we have sponsors in like multiple sponsors in that category. And Mm -hmm. I think because everybody has a sort of different approach, right? I think that's what makes NDR interesting from my perspective is that the different players in it all have their own flavor. Um, But I wanted to talk to you today about like what it's like setting up a successful NDR project at a modern enterprise, or just a typical contemporary enterprise? Like, what are the challenges? What are the pitfalls? Where are the easy wins? Because, right. yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's obviously going to be some CISOs listening to this uh, who have maybe committed to rolling out a project like this. Like, let, let's start with the pitfalls. What should they avoid?
3: I'll tell you one of the challenges that we see in is that you don't always have everybody on the same page. So even when uh, I was doing a lot of work with, with Seam, uh, getting sources, getting the network team set up, getting, you know, TAP and AG set up to feed those tools. That slows everything down. Our solutions, and, and this is true of most NDRs, you know, we've got a sensor up and running and we can feed data in and we're getting metadata really, really quickly. But huge, big pitfall is how long it could take to roll out if your teams aren't talking together, other, which for me is a, a huge red flag. If I have an, if I have an ins- issue, if I have a, a, an incident, being able to bring those teams to the table, if they're not already talking, that's going to slow things down. And that's a huge pitfall and a, and a red flag for me in lots of ways. Just getting all the people to the table. Um, and yeah. that, that's always been a frustration point. And, and, and I think for you know our practices and as we start seeing uh, legislations, demand or, or set limits on how quickly we need to report certain things, those delays in the beginning of the project are are pretty good indicators that you'd have a problem in an incident as well.
1: So, I mean, I, I guess Come what you're mind. saying is this is not set and forget stuff. Ultimately, the decision to go for NDR means someone's going to be responsible for it. It's going to be a team. Uh, could even yeah, be a small be. team, right? Could even be a small yeah. team. But they need to be plugged in and technology is kind of secondary to the team.
3: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The, yeah. the 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 people piece there. Um, the other. Is, I mean, how many? Is, how many?
1: What sort of size teams do you see? Do you see like large enterprises where there might only be a couple of people who are responsible for driving this thing? Yeah. Is it is it solely what they do, or is it like part of their of their day? I'm just curious as to like where organizations tend to set the 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 labor effort that they right. allocate to NDR.
3: We see, and and the teams that we work with day to day, the team, the, the the teams that my team works with day to day, vary from you know a couple of folks, and and it still surprises me to this day the the number of large marquee named enterprises that you'd expect have you know large teams of folks that have a couple of folks that are responsible for everything,
1: you know, they're, they're, yeah,
3: everything. So and I mean there are you know there are orgs and and. It always seems that after there's been after there's been an incident, you know that matures that that investment in yeah. that org. All, of, for, that a yeah, yeah, All yeah. of a sudden they get headcount. Yeah,
1: yeah. All of a
3: sudden they get headcount and and they're not burning through folks. But and I mean it's it's one of the things we talk about a lot for us is is that burnout and that that churn in those organizations. But you know the teams can be quite small and 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 I think you can do a lot with a small team. You know I think you can do, but they have to have. They have to have the ability to work with other teams in the organization, to work with IT, to work with network, and yeah. not. They need be, to be able to get at into Slack.
1: They need to be able to get into Slack and ask the people from the desktop teams or the EDR teams or whatever. Hey, we just saw right. this thing. We need to maybe have a short conversation about it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Hundred um, percent. The other, the other piece there. I mean, we get in and, and even the the initial conversations, knowing the environment. Um, in, in a lot of cases, if they haven't invested in some net level of network visibility, and I don't, I'm not even, you know, just network security, but network visibility. Yeah. You're um, talking
1: like actually understanding what's on the network, a la, yeah. uh, you know, like running run zero against it or something.
3: Yep. Do you, do you have, do you have a clear picture of what your network is and what your, what your attack surface looks like? Um, in a lot of cases, it amazes me, um, sometimes we don't have up to date as built, Network diagrams that reflect yeah. the real environment. So when we start talking about you know sensor placement and where do we want to start with visibility? I mean you know our our initial yeah they come visibility. in and they order
1: like what two sensor licenses and then once you've had a look at the network you say ah mm-hmm. um. uh, yeah we
3: need to yeah we 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 need to cover a little bit more. So you yeah. know that that initial let's get in let's see and and this is one of the things I really love about about uh, NDR is. We get that initial visibility. You know, we set up for north south, and I get to see things, and we start looking at things, going, "Oh, hey, what's yeah, this? What's
1: that? What's that address over there? <laughs> what's, right? Like, right. why am I seeing that packet? Yeah.
3: Yep. And and that's a lot of in the, in that initial rollout. That's our team, and and yeah. I think if you're not expecting it, you know, this is part of why we take kind of the 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 guided approach that we do and engage with with the folks on my team. Is we'll see things, we'll kind of interrogate it, take our best guess at what it is, and then come back to the come back to the customer and say hey, we're seeing this, can you tell us what this is? You know, and, and use that to not only tune the environment, but identify, are, are we missing subnets? Are we missing part of the environment where, you know, evil could be working?
1: I think though, that one thing's worth pointing out, right, is that people might be scared of NDR because it has a DR in it. And mm-hmm. we all know that EDR projects are huge, right? Like they are massive endeavors. Right. NDR is not quite the same, though, is it? I mean, I, I guess what you're saying is like once you've got the the assigned responsibility to a team, you know, mm-hmm. even if that's a couple of people, you know, then it's just a question of figuring out where to go. But you you know, you're installing a handful of sensors. You're not rolling out ten thousand right. endpoint agents on systems that may reject them, <laughs> which is yeah, what can happen in absolutely. EDR, right?
3: Yeah, it's it's honestly, it's not nearly as painful. Um, yeah. you know, uh, it's it's for the degree of visibility that you can get. Um, and, and, and again, in most cases you've already got, you're already getting that network data somewhere, you know, yeah. you've already got those taps set up. Um, and you know, again, one of the things we do pretty well is the, the, the tap and the ag and the deduplication of data feeding into the solution. Um, but well, the advantage
1: of Gigamon actually being a networking company, yeah, right? Like, right. Yeah.
3: Yep. So it, 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 it helps, um, we get that data and we're already seeing, we're already seeing a lot of what we need to see with minimal effort, you know? I mean, um, I mean, when,
1: when Gigamon acquired, uh, iceberg, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the idea was pretty obvious, right? Which is, Hey, you know, we can bake the collection into core Gigamon products, right? Yeah. And sell NDR to existing Gigamon customers and, um, you know, Gigamon already a fairly large company, right? So it, it, right. you know, it made a lot of sense, but quite often when we see these, um, types of acquisitions, you know, there's that initial vision and, you know, they wind up actually succeeding some other way. I'm just curious, you know, is that typically how it's worked for Gigamon, which is Gigamon's existing customers saying, well, we need NDR and we're already a Gigamon shop. We will just, you know, tick that box or whatever.
3: Uh, yes and no. Uh, that, that, that conflict, if you will, that we talked about a little bit with network teams and security teams you yeah. know um yeah. see this know, is what I
1: this is exactly what I was wondering about which is whether or not you'd you'd naturally get that overlap or there'd be a bit of tension there
3: it's it's yeah it's interesting and and again a little frustrating and i mean i, I used to see this in in previous life where we were trying to get things deployed and the network team was kind of holding us you know arms length um because the security team has obviously different objectives than the network team does you know, even though there's quite a bit of overlap in what they're trying to do, they just talk about it differently. But getting them to that table, um, and we still see it within within gigamon, within those relationships. Um, we'll be talking to security architects, but we're not talking to CISOs. You know, or the CISO's is not involved, or doesn't. You know, we can't hop from one to the other. Without I mean, it's just a
1: classic case that the people who are buying the gigamon networking gear aren't the people who are buying the NDR, right? Yeah, so, which is, exactly. Which is why something that appears to be, you know, a, a really logical vision, you know, that, right. it doesn't always work out that way. Doesn't but I'm sure you out. have got sales that way,
3: right? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. As, as as long as we we can get in and have those conversations, and and again, in a lot of cases, it's it is the the more forward thinking CISOs that are, you know, hey, I want to bring these people to a table. Bring these people to the table for a tabletop, for, you know, uh, planning, for, you know, simulation, being part of the conversation. And, and I think that's an evolution um, within security itself, you know, yeah. not having these silos built up. I think we, uh, we've built, we've effectively built these silos and they don't do us a whole lot of good. I, I think we're living in an age where we're seeing a lot of that torn down. Um, and, you know, you see uh, here, here in the States, CISA, you know, working on a lot of collaboration between otherwise competing businesses and evolving that. And then I think it really where a lot of that starts is in these organizations and bringing IT, you know, bringing network to the table and talking to security. And in those cases, yeah, it's just a natural fit. Yeah, there, right. It's, so it's, if you can it, get
1: the right people in the room, it's, it's yeah, it all yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yep, absolutely, yeah.
3: and the, and there's a lot there's a lot of value in network. I mean, you know the 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 network's the one thing that's consistent. Attackers don't need us to have EDR. Attackers don't need us to have, you know, log collection. They need the network. You know, we need. I mean, the what's, network what's surprising to, do to me
1: is like you know there was a the huge push to encryption. Mm-hmm. To be honest, networks being a bit more resilient, like NDR etc., has been a bit more resilient than I expected because so much content has gone opaque. But one mm-hmm. thing that we've seen is that if you just are capturing network data, there's always something you can infer from it, even if you don't have content visibility. And that's yep. been things like, you know, certificate fields, right? And they're probably gonna go away thanks to all sorts of changes in TLS. Mm-hmm. But you're still gonna see something. There's even still, timing even timing analysis tells you so much, you know?
3: Yeah, absolutely absolutely. I mean, and it's it is a it is an exceptionally rich data set. And yeah. and for you know, for the network folks there's a lot that I can see about what's going on in the environment. You know, I may not yeah. be, the, the detections may not be helping me and investigation may not yeah, be helping Yeah, but if you me. get
1: some hit on something else via EDR and then you pull up that box via the, you know, in the NDR console, you're going to maybe, you know, you're going to learn then, something. You're oh, absolutely yeah, going to learn what, something.
3: Even, even DNS misconfiguration shows up yeah. tremendously well once we get deployment. And it's like, oh... You know, this might be something, you know, this might be something you want to look at that's going to improve security posture, but I'm sure this is creating havoc for you elsewhere. You so know, and,
1: TLDR, yeah. understand your network and where you actually need to deploy.
3: Mm-hmm. And the second yep. thing is
1: actually have someone to run this thing because it's not set and forget. It's not a magic blinky light box in right. DR that's just going to make everything good.
3: Correct. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. we're, we're, you know, my, my team's whole focus is we're here to help. So if it's new to you, especially, you know, we start talking about cloud deployments, you know, so some of these environments are brand new to, you know, even, even more mature enterprises, you know, we're here to, to kind of help you out, to guide you through some of that, using our experience, you know, using the, the knowledge that we've gained professionally and then working with other enterprises to kind of help you roll this out, get this up and running, you know, um, but it shouldn't be shouldn't be terribly painful.
1: All right, George Sanford, thank you so much for uh, joining me to just have a bit of a you know high level discussion about making NDR work uh, in a greenfield's deployment. It's been very interesting.
3: Appreciate it, thank you. Man.
1: That was George Sanford from Gigamon. There, big thanks to Gigamon for being a risky business sponsor. And that is it for this week's show. I'll be back in a few days with a great soapbox podcast I recorded with Sneak. Uh, but until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Awesome. No